If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor, and it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection, and I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. I am so glad that you joined us today. Today we are tackling a hot topic. We are tackling the topic of sex. And before you completely hit a panic button or like assume that you know where I'm going with this, let me just say that this episode will probably not go in the direction you would think that a former pastor would take this topic. We're going to dive into what actually is the idea of biblical marriage inside of the text. What did Jesus have to say about this topic? What are my thoughts on premarital sex and adultery and pornography and all the things lumped into this topic that tend to make people really uncomfortable and not really say what they're thinking? I'm going to tackle all of that in this episode, and I am so eager to hit this topic with honesty and transparency. A lot of this topic spurred out of conversations we've had inside the Facebook group. And if you are not inside the Facebook group, I know I say this every week, but sincerely, I would love for you to join that group. There is space for you. Your voice matters. And we would love to hear your journey and your thoughts and your ideas. And you're invited in. So if you'd like to opt in, you can go to my website, just a jesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. We would love to have you join us in there. And if you have not already rated this show on iTunes, do me a favor, hit pause, go to iTunes, look up this podcast, rate, review. It just means the world to me. I love those reviews. They really do encourage me. So Hop over to iTunes, rate, review the show, and it would just mean the world. All of that being said, I have loved connecting with you guys in all of the ways that I connect with you. And again, as I've said, this podcast in particular comes from questions I've received not only inside the Facebook group, although much conversation around this topic has been in there, but also just the other ways that I hear from you guys. I have gotten so many questions about this particular topic through email, in person, through Instagram messages. I've just heard from so many of you and a lot of you are asking the same things. So I am trying my very best to answer all of your similar questions in this one episode. And I like bringing you content that I think is meaningful, that I think is helpful, and that will bring clarity and peace that you might not find inside your faith communities. So I believe this is definitely one of those episodes. So without any further chatting from me, here we go, hitting this topic right out of the gate. Here we go.
welcome back to the podcast. We are tackling such a big topic today. We are tackling all the things marriage, all the things sex, all the things biblical viewpoints, and this can be such a ooh, a tense topic for a lot of people because there are such strong opinions around this whole thing. So I'm just going to dive in and I'm going to hit this from a biblical perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a Jesus perspective, and from just a common sense perspective. So I think you're going to get a ton out of this. I want to start with this whole idea of biblical marriage, because that's something I've heard thrown around a lot in a lot of different arguments is, well, we have to honor the Bible's view of marriage. We have to honor God's view of marriage. One man, one woman. That's usually what it comes down to. And truthfully, you know, when you've grown up in a culture where this is so normal, like this is just the standard expectation you don't even think twice about it. And for a long time, I just kind of rolled with that. I didn't realize until lately, to be honest with you, there's not really a verse in the Bible that says that. The closest thing that I think you can come to biblically that backs up what people say is the Bible's stance on marriage or sex is one man, one woman, would be when Jesus said, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I'm going to get to that verse a little bit later in the show, but I want you to understand the framework of what people are talking about when they're saying, well, the Bible says a marriage is between one man and one woman. It never really says that. This is the verse they're referencing, whether they know it or not. This is the closest thing you can find in scripture that says that. And that that was what Jesus said. Those were his words. So with that in mind, what does the Bible say about marriage? What is the context of quote unquote biblical marriage? I think a lot of us would be shocked and a bit horrified to dig into all of the examples of marriage when you think about it in just a plain text way. You know, I think a lot of us tend to over-romanticize some parts of the Bible and over-romanticize certain stories in the Bible. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, what were the examples of quote-unquote biblical marriage? I don't think a lot of us would be super thrilled with it. And here's what I mean. Biblical marriage, as referenced in the Bible, is a man arranging to buy a girl from her father for an agreed upon purchase price. That's found in Genesis. Biblical marriage is a wife giving her servant to her husband as a wife for sex and procreation, regardless of her servant's wishes. That's referenced numerous times in the Old Testament. Biblical marriage is a raiding party murdering the fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters of a people, but saving the young virgins because they want them as wives for themselves. That's in Judges. Ugh. Biblical marriage is God commanding, supposedly, the massacre of every male and non-virgin and handing over the virgin women to his followers. Like 32,000 women counted among the spoils found in a story in Numbers. Biblical marriage is a victim being forced to marry her rapist with no hope of divorce. Ugh, that's in Deuteronomy. (sighs) 
biblical marriage is often looked at as women being sold as property whose happiness is kind of a non-issue. Like that's not what they really cared about. That is over and over and over found in scripture. Biblical marriage is also an example of one man taking multiple, even hundreds of wives and concubines. And this is found in our founding fathers of our faith, such as David, Solomon, Jacob, Abraham, etc. When you look at biblical marriage as a whole, as to what the Bible often references as marriage, this is unsettling stuff. And and a lot of people will argue, well, well, that was culture. Fine. Let's tackle that viewpoint. Yes, that was culture. But part of that culture was this really big idea of men and women not being equal. It was a very patriarchal society in this context of these cultures we're looking at inside of scripture. And I would argue that that idea has continued into mainstream Western American Christianity that most of us are familiar with. The idea that men, multiple groups of men, if you actually look at it in a lot of the stories, were making decisions for one or two women. So you have many men making the decision for one woman and her not really getting a say in it, her being viewed as property. So biblical marriage has a lot to do with inequality and a lot to do with men making decisions over the future of women and women not having much of a say in the matter. Now, when you skip forward to the New Testament, so we have here we have Abraham, David, Solomon, you know, these men that we have tend to put on this huge pedestal in scripture having multiple wives. And David, great example of having adultery and, you know, killing for the sake of having sex with this woman. I mean, just them getting what they wanted was not an issue. They would do whatever it took to get what they wanted. Well, then you skip forward to the New Testament. And here we have Jesus and Paul with like no partners. So you have the Old Testament with multiple wives. And you have Jesus and Paul who are like not sleeping with anybody. So there's this big, big gap between Old and New Testament and old ideas and new ideas and both of them in cultures that we are not in currently. So what do we do with all of that? What do we do? What would Jesus do to coin that phrase that many of us grew up with? I have some thoughts on that. Jesus introduced this wild idea of women being seen as equals in marriage. And so when he says this verse that people often quote as marriage is between one man and one woman, okay, put your cheering signs down, put your posters down, and let's look at the let's look at the trajectory of this idea of marriage. Marriage for this culture, this society, this group of people as I just explained to you was not an idea of men and women being equals. So when Jesus says this phrase that he says, where he says, God made the male and female for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. That was a wild idea because men had not viewed women in that way before. Men had not seen women as a part of their own body, as them being one unit. It was man up top and women underneath. 
men purchasing women, men just taking on wives because they wanted to have sex with them. This idea changed the whole thing. So I think this was less about the idea of one man, one woman, and more about the idea of a partnership, more about the idea of equality. He's the first to introduce this. And then we look at Paul, and Paul echoes this when he talks about men loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Paul's echoing again this idea of, hey, you guys are partners here. Love this woman like you would love your own body. Like if you don't get the idea of Christ loving the church, like for those of you who missed that idea, he goes on to say, hey, it's like loving your own body. Like you wouldn't harm your own body. You would feed it. You would nurture it. You would take care of it. So they're trying, he's trying to introduce this idea of women being worthy of being valuable partners in marriage, which was revolutionary. And thank God for it. You know, you really see a turn in the idea of women and men in marriage and the idea of respect and and unity and equality. Fascinating and thank God for it. When we look at other scriptures in the New Testament that, and I'm not going to hit all of them because there's just too much, but when you look at the scriptures about not divorcing and and not um, leaving your, your spouse and so forth, they can seem very harsh. But again, I think this is painting more of a picture of monogamy than a picture of what society had been used to. The idea of just tossing a woman out because you were done with her was not uncommon. So this idea of not throwing a woman out, but actually staying faithful to her was a new idea. We take for granted um, how we view the treatment of human beings now. But but again, but in this society, buying a human being was not beneath anyone. Fathers happily sold their their children if they were girls for the right price. Men happily discarded one when they were done with them. You, you know, so again, this introduction of faithfulness of monogamy, of equality, all of this was revolutionary. So I wanted to set the framework before I tackle these other points I'm going to get into. I wanted to set the framework of biblical marriage as to what it was and then this new idea that Paul and Jesus introduced. Okay. Having that said, Jesus really didn't have much opinions about premarital sex or homosexual sex or adultery. Like he he really didn't talk too much about any of that stuff. Multiple partners, not multiple partners. You know, he was not keen on talking about that very often. And and so we really don't have a lot to go on as to what Jesus would have said because he really didn't talk about it much. He seemed a lot more interested in other topics such as judging people, such as including people, such as not shaming or condemning people, such as loving the foreigner and including the outsider, such as feeding and clothing the poor and taking care of widows and orphans. Jesus was a lot more interested in those topics than he 
ever was interested in who was sleeping with who. I could kind of just end the podcast right there, by the way. But we are not like that. Still to this day, we are very fascinated and obsessive about, well, what's wrong? What's not wrong? And a lot of us carry and have carried much shame over this idea of sexuality and what is right and what is wrong. Okay. I'm hoping that this is going to breathe some freedom into you and remove some of that shame. Okay. Sliding into this topic of premarital sex. Oh boy, is this a biggie. I've gotten this question so many times through email, so many times in person. And it's always like this whispered question like, Anna, is sex okay before we're married? Because we really love each other. and, And I just, but I feel so much shame. Like I have lost count of how many times people have come to me and asked me this. So I know this is a burning question. And for those of you who are already married, maybe you're raising children and this is the question. So I know this touches multi-generational groups of people. So here we go. Premarital sex. I think it's important to note that in scripture, when we're reading the Bible, we have to remember the context of the culture. It's so important to have that framework. Marriage in biblical times And this was not just for this particular um, portion of the world. This was culturally the norm. Marriage was considered normal when boys were 13 and girls were around the age of 12. Like this was normal. And they considered that appropriate ages because that's when puberty set in. So of course, marriage was the next move. Like that made sense to them, you know, and it really isn't until the last century or so that the average age of marriage jumped to the 20s and 30s, which is where we're at now. That's the average. So this idea of waiting for marriage, when you're comparing a 20 or 30 something to what the Bible was referencing as a 12 and 13 year old, It's a vast cultural gap. Like that is hugely different. So when we're looking at the idea of premarital sex and whether it's right or whether it's wrong, I think we have to remember the way our bodies are made, that our bodies are naturally made to be sexual around the age of 12 and 13. That is normal. That is a God-given trait that our bodies carry. And so shaming adolescents for A, being sexually active, or B, being interested in sexual things is just absurd, not to mention extremely harmful. I've heard the story of many, many people who didn't wait until they were married and carried so much guilt and shame over that, but they loved their partner. Whether they married their their first or not, they genuinely felt in love with that person. And instead of celebrating that, instead of being excited about feeling the feelings of love and, and wanting to spend your life with this person, instead, because of their religious background, because of the religious voices in their life, all they were met with was huge heaps of shame. That shame and that fear did not prevent them from having sex. 
But what it certainly did was prevent them from enjoying sex for the rest of their lives inside of their marriage. So it's very counter um, productive, I, I think, to to scare adolescents, to shame adolescents into some sort of behavior that we hope that they adhere to. Using my own story as an example, I was a technical virgin when I got married. Now I got married um, at the age of 18. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for me to experiment, but I did experiment some, but I was, like I said, I was technically still a virgin when I got married. And to be honest with you, if I would have waited until I was in my late 20s, there's no way I would have still been a virgin. And I loved Jesus and I loved doing all the things that I felt God would have wanted me to do. But at some point, we have to be realistic about the way our bodies are made and the way relationships just naturally progress. So do I think premarital sex is this horrible sin? No, because most of you listening to this podcast, that was your story. You had premarital sex. Did you die from it? Did it ruin the rest of your life? No, but the shame probably did. And the shame probably had more to do with the people in your life rather than something God put on you. So again, premarital sex, is it the worst sin in the world? No, I don't think it is. Is it even a sin? Truthfully, I don't know. Jesus didn't talk about it. And when scripture is talking about keeping the marriage pure and all these things. Well, that's easy to say to a 12 and 13 year old. If they've got to only wait 12 years, it's pretty easy. And if you can't help yourself and you have to take on like David, he couldn't help himself. He wanted Bathsheba. So he just took her as a wife. When it's an option to just take people as wives and get married right when puberty kicks in, it's easy to keep the marriage bed pure. Like that is not a hard thing to, to figure out. But in our culture, in our context, we have to back up and reevaluate and go, okay, that is not our culture. That is not our context. So now what do we do? Our bodies are designed this way. What do we do with that? I think it's a slippery slope when you start shoving your own shame, your own convictions onto other people, whatever they may be. I look at the story of of Adam and Eve in the garden and, you know, they didn't have a marriage ceremony that I'm aware of. Like, I don't remember a white dress and a preacher and a do you take this woman till death do you part speech. Like, I don't remember that portion of scripture. What I do know is that God joined them together. And as Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Who are we to start pointing the finger at what is a God-ordained union and what isn't? I certainly am not wanting to step into those shoes and do that because the repercussions of being wrong and shaming someone when it's not your position to shame, they're lifelong repercussions that those people carry for the rest of their lives. And I can promise you they do because they email me and tell me about it. And these are men and women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that are still carrying shame from stuff that happened when they were teenagers that their parents or their pastors or their groups just ridiculed them over. Sex is not supposed to be shameful. 
clearly read the Song of Solomon. We've been having fun discussions in the Facebook group about that book. I was told, don't read that book, Anna, until you're 30. Well, you know, most of us, if we get told that, we like run into our closets and read the book. I didn't understand most of it when I first read it because I was a lot younger and I was like, grapes? Why is he talking about grapes and towers and mounting? And, you know, I didn't know what any of that was. And I mean, I had ideas, but no, now that I am older, I can read it and go, oh, this is a very sexualized book. You go, Solomon. You go. You own that. You know, he was like not ashamed of sex. Men were not ashamed to just take on another woman and have sex with her. Like that was not a shameful thing. So the amount of shame that we have allowed to creep into this topic is just so damaging. So, premarital sex. I will tell you my take on it. I think that wanting to have sex with someone is natural. I think that especially young adults, teenagers, in our culture that is very highly sexualized and given that their bodies are made to be that way, to expect them not to want that is absurd. But that's where we get to help them make wise decisions. And hopefully we create space where they feel safe to talk to us and invite us into those decisions. Now, I have a teenager and I can tell you this has been some of the most terrifying territory I've ever walked into. I'm raising a daughter where, you know, the world is filled with pornography. I didn't really have access to that kind of stuff when I was her age. So this is a whole new world. Not to mention she has friends that are totally open about their sex lives and I'm navigating these waters with her and what I'm finding is that every situation is unique I'm finding that every girl is different every boy is different and I'm finding that the more power I give her to make her own decisions with her own body the more wise she's being with those decisions I can't predict the future I have no idea the decisions she is going to make. But truthfully, even if I was shaming her into the true love weights speech and forcing a chastity belt around her waist, she would probably still make her own decisions. The difference is that I'm giving her permission to make her own decisions and I am creating space for her to not feel shame about those decisions or talking to me about them. So... Do I believe multiple partners is a good idea? No. And I think the Bible speaks to that. I think that, again, when Jesus and Paul are talking about faithfulness and talking about monogamy, introducing that idea, there is such wisdom in that. We get to impart that wisdom to the people who are coming up underneath us, whether they be our children or our grandchildren, or it's even ourselves that we're giving this wisdom to ourselves. There's wisdom in that. But there's also wisdom in allowing them to feel those feelings and allowing them to fall in love and allowing them to get all the butterflies and all the feels and allowing them to feel that they want those things. Helping them navigate those waters is so important. So premarital sex, truthfully, it's between that person and God. That's where it lies. Your sex life has completely been between you and God your whole life. Unless you've invited hundreds of opinions in, which I doubt helped you very much. 
at the end of the day, we all want our private life to be between us and God. And we have to honor that boundary with other people too. You know, I look at, this has given me a little bit of peace as a mom and as a person who has my own journey in this department, that you look at these men in scripture that had multiple sex partners, Abraham, David, Solomon, God blessed them richly. And I might add, again, these sex partners weren't all taken the right way, i.e. David and Bathsheba. We see that one picture. But when you look at all of the wives that these men collectively had, I am sure that is not the only time one was taken in not the most clean of circumstances. And yet God blessed them. God didn't shame them. And then you look at Paul, polar opposite, who had zero partners. God blessed him. So I don't really think the amount of partners that we have makes our rank in the eyes of God. I really don't. I think that it shows that our sex life is ours and it's our journey between us and God. And where you land with God on your journey is between you and God. The moment the church started inviting itself into everyone's bedrooms, we got into trouble. We see that with the woman being condemned and shamed for committing adultery. Jesus stepped in and was like, okay, any of you guys want to start listing your moments you're a little bit embarrassed about or shamed of? No, they all left. No one wanted to, mind you, they left one by one, the oldest leaving first. You know, the people have been along life longer, you know, they had their list of shaming moments. They were like, yeah, no, I'm checking out. Uh, I've got a long list behind me. I don't want to have to share that stuff. So there's such beauty in that where Jesus was like, oh my gosh, back off, back off. And he left it between her and Jesus, which is exactly where it should have been. Okay. Moving on past premarital sex. Now, We get into this whole topic of pornography, which unfortunately has led a lot of people into a lot of sexual encounters that they probably wouldn't have had had pornography not planted that seed, which is so, so sad. I've heard both um, ends of the spectrum on this. I've heard from married couples that say that it's a healthy part of their sex life, that it enhances it. I have heard from many other couples that it's the reason they divorced. So there are definite big swings on this spectrum. I've done research on this, and not only has pornography been proven to be highly addictive, but it's been proven that inside of a partnership, inside of a couple, it removes intimacy. We had Paul Young um, on the show last week. Oh my gosh, if you missed it, fantastic episode. I have heard so much feedback from you guys. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. But he has this quote where he said, pornography is so appealing because it's the idea of a relationship without taking the actual risks of a real relationship. So it's a fantasy of a relationship, but it's not really a real relationship, which is why it's so appealing. And that's so true because inside of intimacy where you are bare, 
right? Sexual encounters, you are totally exposed. It's supposed to be exposing, but in a safe way. It's supposed to be not only intimate physically, but intimate spiritually, intimate emotionally. It can be healing. It can be comforting. It can be conversational. It's where two people, like Jesus said, become one. Where your fears become their fears, your insecurities become their insecurities, to where they're carrying you and you are carrying them, not only physically and meeting physical needs, but you're meeting a lot more needs than that. That's the, that's the beauty of it. And when you miss that part and you dumb it down to just a sexual thing, it's still good, but it certainly is not nearly as intricate and detailed and amazing as it can be. And so studies have shown that when pornography is involved, whether one partner on their own or both partners together, when they come together for a sexual encounter, for sex, they are less likely to be intimate. It removes the intimacy piece. And I find that so sad because personally speaking, that's the best part. So your thoughts on pornography are your thoughts, but I think it's important when we are making decisions for ourselves and when we're helping, like I said, the next generation behind us, especially those that are parents, when we're guiding people through decisions, that they know everything about those decisions. And pornography, that's a big trade-off. I remember having a conversation with my daughter about about that and and explaining to her how pornography robs that intimacy piece. Statistically, scientifically, it's proven. This isn't just a theory, like it's proven. And so being able to tell her how important sex is, not just for a physical need, but for an emotional connection with a partner long-term that, of course, I want her to eventually have that I don't want her to miss out on that. And we were able to have a really, really good, honest conversation along those lines. And, and I, and I know she heard me again, I cannot control her decisions, but I know I've at least given her good information for her to then make her own decisions from. So, um, I'm not a fan of the whole pornography thing. I'm just going to throw that out there. I've seen more damage than I've seen good. But again, that's a topic that each person has to come to their own conclusions on. So moving on to this last one, which is the whole topic of adultery. I personally get real fired up when I hear about adultery because nobody likes to be cheated on. Nobody likes thinking that they weren't worthy of being faithful to or weren't respected in that department. And when we hear that someone has cheated, we get like fired up, right? And we, everybody says, oh, well, that's the one, that's the one loophole in the Bible. If they commit adultery, they can get divorced. Ugh. So I'm going to be honest with you and confess to you that I have been in that camp for most of my life. I have personal experience that has made me very much a, um, lifelong caring card member of that camp. However, it changed for me a few years ago. I had dinner with a good friend of mine and I learned 
because I didn't really know her story. You know, I know her and her husband, I know their kids, but I didn't really know how they met the backstory. Right. So I'm asking her these questions about how did you guys meet and da, 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 da. She was really evasive about all of that. And I finally, I guess, created a safe enough space for her to be honest. And she shared with me how she and her husband were married before to other people. They met while they were still married and they started a relationship. They had an affair, ended up getting divorced and, you know, to their previous spouses. And then they married each other and there were no kids involved from their first marriages and they created this beautiful family. Well, you look at them on the surface, serving in their church, teaching Sunday school, Bible study, all the things for beautiful babies. And you're just like, oh, huh, that didn't go the way that I would have thought, right? Like you immediately think, oh, well, if they cheat and then they have an affair, then that means the relationship is just going to be cursed and God won't bless it. And ugh. And then you see stories like that of a really long, really healthy marriage with a really healthy family. And you go, oh, well, that just spun that whole thing, didn't it? Esther, Esther, am I saying that right? Esther Perel. I always want to say Esther because it looks like Esther, but I think she pronounces it Esther Perel has done a lot of work on re. I think one of her, um, works is called rethinking adultery or something like that. And, um, she's a therapist. She's done a lot of work in this arena and I've read some of her work and it has just given me a softened heart on this whole topic. And the basis of a lot of her work is that no affair is just an affair. There's always something underneath that led up to that. There's always a story before that. And there's usually hurt and pain and reasons that people step outside their marriage. And so when I look at adultery now, I have a softened lens. You know, when when I hear like, stories of, well, so-and-so cheated, my knee-jerk response, that legalistic response I used to have would have been like, shame on them, you know, and very, very black and white on it. And now, now I'm like, oh, oh, I wonder what led them there. I wonder what that story is. And as Jesus said, What God joins together, let no one separate. And who's to say what those joinings look like? We don't know. It is so easy for us to point the finger at people's sex lives, at people's sex decisions, and decide what God would or wouldn't join together. It's so easy to do that. And yet, when you get in life with people, you realize how complicated life is and especially how complicated relationships are. And you realize there's no one way to look at this. There are a thousand different ways I could look at this. And where does God land in that? I don't know. It's between them and God. I don't know. And when I start thinking I know, I should probably check myself. (laughs) Because it's way above my pay grade. Your journey is your journey. And if your journey includes premarital sex, be free from shame from that. Be free from that. If your journey includes committing adultery, 
Be free from the shame of that. If your journey includes being cheated on, your worth isn't defined by that. If your journey has included multiple partners, be free from the shame of that. Jesus didn't talk much about sex. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. People seem to be obsessed with it. Jesus wasn't. So I think it's safe to say that God is not obsessed with your sex life. Certainly not in the way humans are. Sex is a beautiful expression of love. It's a beautiful expression of comfort. It's a beautiful expression of healing. It's a beautiful spiritual interaction. And who and when you have that with is between you and your creator, the divine. Not between you and your parents. Not between you and your peers. Not between you and me. It is purely between you and God. I hope that this has brought some clarity. I know this is a layered topic and I did my best to cover it as best I could, but I know that I can't answer every single question inside of this arena. But if I can leave you with anything, I want to leave you with the comfort of knowing that there's nothing you can do to bring shame on you in front of God. There's nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. No created being, no height, no depth, no dark, no light, nothing, no decision you make can separate you from God's love. You are perfect in his eyes. Like any daddy would look at at, at his baby, any good dad, I should say, or good mommy would look at their baby and find them perfect. That's how you are viewed in the eyes of God, innocent and perfect. I hope this inspires you to be more free and especially free from shame and to enjoy the wonderful part of life, including sexuality and all those things that Solomon himself was super thrilled about. So I think we have permission to be super thrilled about them. But just to know that this is a topic we have permission to lighten up about. We really do. Go in peace. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.